call the worshipers from Psalm 113, Psalm 113, which really sets the context for our study in the book of Daniel. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes, with the princes of their people. He sets the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's sing uh, Psalm 50a. Our scripture reading is a sermon text this morning in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Daniel chapter 12, first four verses. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress that has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Steve, can you come lead us in prayer? As we begin the last chapter of Daniel, I want you to reflect on what has come before. It's been an amazing story, all these different things that have happened to our, our real example here with Daniel, from the very beginning being taken into captivity into a strange and foreign land, to interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, to the feast there with Belshazzar, the, the lion's den event, and then all of the prophecy that is poured out um, through Daniel about this repeating and sort of building story about this this time period that God's people were going to go through. It really is a remarkable book. And consider how the unity of the book helps us to understand the book itself because I think this is where uh, we have lots of problems with modern Christians. They don't understand the unity of the book of Daniel and how it all fits together. And so they're they've left to going to look for the newspaper to find out what Daniel means. And that's, of course, a real problem. And, of course, we are, we are very much dumbed down in the way Daniel communicates in his style. We are dumbed down in our knowledge of the scriptures that, that Daniel used constantly over and over allusions to various parts of scripture. And so we really have a challenge. So reflect about how this story of Daniel really fits together. Um, if you think about the chapter 2 with the the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the metal man image with the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron and clay feet. That story really is the outline for what happened in the rest of the book. Um, these, of course, represent four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And that sequence of powers, that sequence of powers is those who would possess the holy people, the Jews, and the land, and this is the sort of format for the rest of the book. This is what keeps being coming up again and again, this sequence that takes place. 
And, and Daniel brings up the same sequence with the animals, with the lion, the bear, the goat, and the terrible fierce beast with powerful iron teeth. So it just keeps happening over and over again. And once we see how all this fits together, we can see how this is really telling the same story. Now added to the sequence uh, that we saw in Daniel 2, first introduced in Dan- Daniel 2, we have in chapter 9 a set time period. We saw how the 70 years of captivity for the Jews is the pattern for the 70 weeks or the 70 times 7 years of a greater captivity for Israel, which, could, which would last until the coming and work of the Messiah. And so over the last few weeks, we've been going through this last section, literary section of Daniel, these last three chapters of Daniel, 10, 11, and 12, and we've seen how all these prophecies are a further explanation a further revelation about what's going to take place during these 70 weeks. And we've worked our way through um, this sequence of kingdoms which matches up with this sequence of a set time period. So think of the sequence of kingdoms as um, unified with this set time period and you're going to be, have a real good way of getting a handle on Daniel, the whole book, and then specifically our text today. We are now in the time of Rome the iron mixed with clay of, da- of Daniel's um, interpreted uh, dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And now we are also at the very end of the set time period of the 70 weeks. And so last time we saw how the end of Daniel 11 set the historical context for Judea and the Roman Empire for the coming of Christ and for what we see happening throughout the rest of the New Testament. So everything's coming to a head here in Daniel chapter 12 and it's all pointing to um, the, the stories and the themes that have been introduced earlier. So these parallels then, uh, the, the end of the four kingdoms and the end of the set time will help us understand our text in Daniel 12. So what happens during the fourth kingdom? This is what happens during the fourth kingdom. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Now if you think back to the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Let's go back to that for a second. We'll see what happens in the fourth kingdom because we've already been told about what's going to happen with Michael here. This has already been introduced to us in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. What happens in the, at the end of this image, at the end of this vision of the, this dream about this metal man image, verse 31 through 35, we have the introduction of what we're going to be talking about today. Verse 31, You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And so this is the first introduction for what we're going to talk about with what Daniel sees here in the beginning of Daniel chapter 12, at the very end of the set time period, at the very end of the sequence of the four kingdoms. Daniel 12 is a fuller exposition of the rock And we've seen this progression as we've gone along. So Michael here, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Michael simply means he who is like Jehovah. 
And actually, if you look at um, some background, the way Michael is used elsewhere in Scripture, he is the chief prince or the captain of the Lord's army. And in the context here, um, I believe, I'm not going to go into an extended argument on this, but I believe Michael is clearly a reference to Jesus the Messiah. And partly because of the connection to what happens, what we saw introduced in Daniel 2, with the rock not cut out by human hands coming and striking the statue during the time of the four kingdom, fourth kingdom. So here we have this parallel here, and this is talking about Ma- Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. This is really talking about um, one who's going to come deliver his people. But it is also talking about the coming of the rock, not cut out by hands to strike the statue. Daniel is told that a time of great distress would take place. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Now remember the chiastic parallel here with this section because this matches the time of distress that Daniel had undergone in Daniel chapter 10. Remember, we'd already seen Michael mentioned in Daniel chapter 10. Michael comes to the deliverance of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 when he had this this situation with the prince of Persia. And so now we have, just as as Daniel was delivered by Michael at the beginning of this chiastic structure, now we have the arise, um, Michael arising and coming to deliver Daniel's people in this great time of distress. Now there is a direct match here um, which should be fairly obvious to you uh, between this passage and what Jesus taught about the great tribulation. And that's really the subject here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and let's notice how uh, Jesus uses the very same language that Daniel has introduced here. He's teaching nothing other than what Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 12. Matthew chapter 24, note we'll have in verse 21 and 22, both a great distress and a deliverance. Verse 21, For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, that's Daniel's people, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. And so Jesus is talking about a time of great distress, and we know the context of Matthew 24 is dealing with his particular generation, which was the last bit of that set time period, the very ending of the 70 weeks. So we have a time of distress and then God's people will be delivered. Verse 2, Daniel says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to, ever, to shame and everlasting contempt. Now this passage confuses a lot of Christians because there are a couple of real challenges um, to understanding it properly. First, people tend to read it literally as if Daniel is talking about dead corpses coming out of the ground. But again, this chiastic structure helps us understand this because this is parallel to the resurrection of Daniel that we saw in Daniel chapter 10. Remember, Daniel fell face first into the dust, into the ground, and then the angel touches him and raises him up by speaking to him. The word of the Lord came to Daniel and there was a a, a sort of a symbolic resurrection with Daniel. And this is actually connected to that because you have the appearance of Michael, you have... 
at that time, your people everywhere whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So just as Daniel was da- had his face down into the dust in Daniel 10 and was raised by the angel, by the word of the Lord, through the angel, now you're going to have his people who are sleeping in the dust of the earth will awake and rise, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. And there's a, there's a lot of different ways that people try to handle this text um, because of the assumption that Daniel's talking about physical bodies coming out of the ground. Okay, casket resurrection is a good term to, 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 to put that. I mean, they read it literally and they say, well, this has got to be bodies coming out of the ground and since that hasn't happened yet this has to be sometime in our future at the, maybe at the end of the world when you have a general resurrection of all men and all bodies come out of the ground and so you'll notice here if you do that you end up taking this little bit out of Daniel 12 and ripping it out of its context and it violates the structure it violates all the parallels it violates the pattern that we have with Daniel's resurrection which was a symbolic resurrection when he received the word of the Lord now we should recognize, and I think it helps to recognize, that the background of this language comes from Genesis 3. What did God say to Adam after he broke God's covenant in the garden when he was receiving God's judgment for, for, for disobedience? God told Adam, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And people tend to read that very literally as well. They tend to think of that as being physical, biological life, which obviously is matched here with Daniel 12 because Daniel's using the same kind of language that we saw back in Genesis 3 with the curse. But the problem is the context of the garden is that Adam and Eve are being cut off from the presence of God and being cast out of the garden. Remember the context of the garden. Adam was made from the dust of the earth in the wilderness and then he was placed in the garden. Remember the story. We see the same things going with Israel taking from the Gentiles placed in the promised land. Okay? And that's really the context of what this statement is in, in Genesis 3, that as they were made of the dust of the wilderness, and so they would be returned to the wilderness because of their disobedience. And so if you look at the way this language works, it's not really an issue of, of trying to make it work literally, because it doesn't work literally in this context. And we saw the same thing with Israel um, in the land taken from the dust of the, of the nations. They were placed in the land like Adam. Israel broke the covenant and they were returned back out to the dust, of the, the dust of the earth, back out to the nations from which they came. And we can see this very clearly with the way the prophets speak. And I want to show you how the prophets and Daniel also um, recognize as prophets, uh, a prophet speaks the same way as Genesis in Isaiah 52. It's really a parallel text here. Isaiah 52 with Israel in bondage in the Babylonian captivity. Note how Isaiah uses this language. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. O captive daughter of Zion. Now, is the prophet talking to biologically dead people there? No, he's talking about living, breathing human beings, Israel, who in captivity had been lowered into the dust of the earth. That's the way the prophet's using that language. 
sleeping in the dust of the earth, just like we have Daniel talking about the resurrection, this great resurrection, this time to come when multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. So the problem is they're in the dust of the earth sleeping. And we see a parallel there with Isaiah 52. Israel was asleep in the dust of the earth when she found herself in captivity because she was dead in her sins. And this passage is talking about the spiritual condition of the nation as a whole of God's people, just like we saw with Adam and Eve, um, their spiritual condition with the curse in Genesis chapter 3. They were asleep in the dust of the earth, dead in their trespasses and sins, and they were in bondage of captivity. Now, the problem of the literal biological reading of Daniel 12 is leads to the second problem, like I said, is taking this out of its context because you have to have some type of physical, bodily, um, fleshly casket resurrection and putting it into the future because that that's, hasn't happened yet. So once people start thinking about this in terms of a literal biological resurrection, they end up basically ripping apart all of the... All of the uh, all of the structure of the uh, of the of the text, they end up, you know, kind of messing up with the set time period because this is still describing the end of the seventy weeks, which comes to fulfillment in the first century. So, what is this resurrection all about? This is the resurrection of Israel, and we can see a very parallel text here with Ezekiel chapter thirty-seven. If you want to go look at that, you'll see the very same kind of very literal-sounding language being used by the prophet about dead bones you know, being put together and standing up again and flesh being put on the bones. But actually what Ezekiel 37 is talking about is the resurrection of Israel when Israel will be made alive again. So when Michael, the rock, not cut out by human hands, appeared, he brought life to Israel. And that's actually what happened. That is what the ministry of Christ was all about. Jesus healed the sick and he raised the dead as a sign of what his ministry was all about. And then he cleansed those who were clean. That's making a lot. If you look at the way the law works with, uh, with clean and unclean laws, to make clean is a resurrection. It's a miniature resurrection, but it is a resurrection. And then you have Jesus restoring the law to Israel. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. Making alive Israel's law again because it was dead. It had been totally corrupted by the tradition of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod. And then Jesus cleansed the temple, a very significant thing, to make Israel alive again. And he told the people that there was a new temple coming, a living temple. He called his body the temple. So all Israel was made alive because the Son of Righteousness shined on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Michael woke Israel up. That is what the Gospels tell us. And what was the result of Jesus' ministry? Some of the Jews believed to everlasting life and others rejected him to, everlast, to shame and everlasting contempt. And I think if you look at the parables, the parables match this, uh, some of the parables match this uh, motif very, very well with the resurrection of Israel. If you think about the parable of the seeds and the soils, you have the farmer who goes out and he casts out seed and some seed lands on fertile ground, some seed lands on rocky ground, some seed lands in the, in, the, in the highway where it gets trampled. All the seed sprouts, right? That's what the parable says. It all comes up, and then the sun came out, and some of it withered, some of it got trampled, and then some on, that landed on the fertile ground produced a bountiful harvest. Well, that parable 
the way Christians tend to think about salvation doesn't really apply to salvation because we tend to think of salvation as being something that is final, that God saves his people and they don't die later. Okay? But with the resurrection of Israel, that context, the, the sowing of that seed and some of it persevering and some of it wilting and dying is exactly the fulfillment of what's going on here with the resurrection of Israel. Michael woke Israel up. Verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The faithful are described as shining as lights in the heavens like stars forever and ever. And again, this symbolism goes back all the way to the, to the beginning of Genesis. I actually think it goes back to the creation account. But um, that's controversial. And I guess you could say it, where it would be non-controversial is where you have the promise given to Abraham. Because what did God tell Abraham? God told Abraham to go out and look at the stars and as the stars are, so will your children be. So will your descendants be. So you get the link between God's people and stars at least beginning with Abraham. We see the same thing going on with Joseph in his dream in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph had a dream where he dreamed that the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. And everybody knew exactly what that was all about. Jacob says, how is it that your father and your mother and your 11 brothers are going to bow down to you? Who are these heavenly hosts? The heavenly hosts are God's people. They understood that right away. So, so when, when Daniel starts using this kind of symbolism, this sort of metaphorical representation of God's people, we shouldn't be surprised or confused by it because it goes back in the story. It's part of what he was used to. This prophecy is fulfilled in the New Testament as well. Did you know that Paul called the early Christians bright stars that shine in the darkness? Where do you think Paul got that idea? Philippians chapter 2. Various translations don't know what to do with this sometimes. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I do not run or labor for nothing. We see this another association in the New Testament of stars with the churches in Revelation chapter 1 and 16 and verse 20 in various places. But all of this, whether it be Revelation 1 or Philippians chapter 2 with Paul, is drawing from what Daniel had already prophesied about this time to come, when God's people would be wise and start shining again like the stars in the darkness. But you, Daniel, verse 4, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. The increase of knowledge here is a reference to those who would learn more as these prophecies came to pass. And we see very good testimony in the New Testament that there were people that understood what had come to pass and there were people expecting the Messiah because their knowledge had increased. But now the prophecy comes to an abrupt end. Daniel is told to seal up the scroll until the time of the end. And again, the time of the end is a huge point of confusion that will lead, uh, lead Christians down very wrong roads about what Daniel is talking about. We should not make the mistake here of assuming that this is the end of the physical universe 
because it's really not. It's the end of the 70 weeks. It's the end of the old creation order. It's the end of the old covenant. It could be phrased in many different ways, but in the context, the end here is of the set time. But this, it's almost as if this whole vision has a to-be-continued sign stamped on the scroll. That's how abruptly it ends. Daniel seal up the scroll until the time of the end, and that's sort of the end of what Daniel is told. There is more to the story, but not for Daniel. And we live after the fulfillment of these things. We live after the fulfillment of the 70 weeks. So we have the rest of the story. Um, Daniel's prophecy is sealed up here in Daniel chapter 12. And what's very interesting about the book of Revelation is you have a very big uh, story in the book of Revelation uh, in verses five, in chapter 5 where you have this question about who can unseal the scroll. Of course, that's drawing from Daniel chapter 12 where the scroll is sealed. And of course, it is someone special who is able to open the, open, unseal the scroll in Revelation. Now, the end of the story or the continuation of the story that gets basically paused right here is in Revelation chapter 12. And let's go to Revelation 12 and we'll be able to see how this, the story that, begun, that was told to Daniel comes to full completion in Daniel chapter 12. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12. Beginning verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Lots of imagery there coming from the Old Testament. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Going back to the garden with a serpent. The dragon and the serpent are really the same thing. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. So here we have this story of Michael picking up what was stopped there in Daniel chapter 12. The statement that, that, that at this time Michael was going to arise. Now we pick up the story. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. Notice who it is that initiates the fight. It's Michael. The Messiah is the one who initiates that rock that came out of heaven, was not made by human hands, initiates the fight and strikes the statue. And this great war began between Jesus and his people on one side and those controlled by the dragon. And this, this jewelry and this crown and stuff that the dragon is wearing is really the garb of these four kingdoms all rolled into one and they were really the ruling authorities that set themselves against the reign of the Messiah. Continue in verse 8. But he, that would be the dragon, was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so we have this retribution on the dragon. 
Just as the dragon had used his tail to hurl stars to the ground, to the earth, and now we have the justice of retribution. Now the dragon himself is hurled to the earth. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of, our, of his Christ. And that's language from Daniel chapter 7 when you have the ascension of the saints to reign and the, and the final establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah. So this is the fulfillment of the line of succession foretold in Daniel because actually I didn't tell the whole truth when I said that Daniel is about four kingdoms because really Daniel is not about four kingdoms. Daniel is really about five kingdoms because there is going to be a new kingdom coming in during the time of the fourth kingdom. This would be the kingdom of Michael, the eternal kingdom of the Messiah. So I want you to ponder when you think about these stories in Daniel and the connections that, we, that connect all of the Old Testament to the New Testament, I want you to ponder the blessings that we have. This battle is over. And Christians, for some reason, want to keep repeating or sort of extending out, continuing this battle as if it was their battle. No, this battle is over. The, the dragon has been slain. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we don't face our battles when we face those who try to rebel against the kingdom of Michael, but Michael reigns over them, casting down the proudful and raising up the humble. And that's really what's going on in our day. You look at the economic crisis, you look at the chaos, the political chaos, the sort of near hysteria about the way things are going today, that's the reigning of Michael. That's Michael and his kingdom reigning over the nations, reigning in our country, reigning in our community, reigning at every single level and even in our own lives over all things. The current economic crisis is really the visible effect of God's rule in the world. And so we should not despair. We should not be in hysterics about what's going on. It may affect us in some way, but this is the reign of Michael. The idols of our culture and our society are crumbling. So what is our duty as the covenant people of God? Your duty is to do what God created you to do. Your duty is to shine. You are to shine as the bright lights in the darkness. That's what God created you for. Where you see the darkness out there, bring light. Continue to learn to be skilled and wise as you reign with Christ in the domain that he has placed you. So may we be bright stars for the glory of God, our creator, in our day and our time. Because really, we're just the extension of this story. And we're just part of this kingdom that was established in the first century with the coming of Michael the Messiah. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. You've been a protector and a guide for us. You've delivered us from great tribulations, from trials. You've delivered us from temptations. We pray that you'd give us peace in our hearts as we move forward, uh, calm our spirits in an age that seems tumultuous and chaotic. And Lord, we pray that you keep your hand of protection on us as we continue to live in your kingdom, as we continue to interact with others around us, with the world. 
through our relationships and through our activity, the work of the hands, work of our hands that you have given us. We pray that you guide us in the days to come. Give us wisdom to make the most of the opportunities that you bless us with. May we be faithful to you in all the things that are in front of us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.